0: Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Today and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's open our Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Paul's letter to the Colossians chapter 1. The most important question. The most important question. If you're a note taker and you want a title, I'd I'd suggest that one. Jesus asked a lot of questions. If you ever notice that as you're reading the gospel accounts, he asked a lot of questions. But the case could be made that one of the most important questions he asked was actually a two-parter. They were in Caesarea Philippi, and he had his disciples there. And he said, who do men say that I am? And they suggested, well, some are saying John the Baptist, because John the Baptist had been killed. And then, you know, they're thinking John the Baptist, maybe Elijah or one of the other prophets. But then the second part was, he turned to them and said, who do you say that I am? Well, Peter, he steps right up and says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And, of course, Jesus commends him, but also lets him know that, well, you had a little help with that answer. That, that answer, you could, that's my paraphrase, but Peter got the answer right. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. If you ask those type of questions today, you'd get a number of answers. Here in America, there's all kinds of answers you get. People would say to a question like, who do you say Jesus is? You'd, you'd hear things like, oh, great teacher. great! You got this key religious figure from history. They'd say something like, oh, he set such a great example for us. How to love. How to reach out to the hurting and the downtrodden. Right? Would those things be true? Yes, they would. Would they be complete? Well, not really. They would not be complete. Those things are true, but primarily we know as believers that the scriptures show that Jesus is really about salvation. We have a sin problem and it separates us from the eternal God who created us. And Jesus came to get that remedy, to be the remedy for that sin problem. So, really, if you're going to talk about who is Jesus, if you leave out the salvation part, you're missing what may be the most important part. Let let me give you an example. Let me me give you this. Let's say that I tell you that um, this summer I went to a, a baseball game. I went to a Twins game. And you're a Twins fan, you're a baseball person. You say, oh, how was the ball game? And if I said, oh, wow. You should see that stadium. Wow, it's really, really neat. Wow, they've done a great job in that stadium. And then we get inside, and my, oh, maybe it was my favorite part. Between innings, they came around with this bazooka thing, and they shot this, these T-shirts, and we got one. And then, oh, man, another highlight for me was between innings, they actually stood up and they sang. And I started singing God Bless America because that's what I thought they were going to sing, but they sang Take Me Out to the Ball Game. I don't know when they changed that back. But. And then, you know, maybe, maybe it was those, man, they had awesome hot dogs and they were only $10. <laughs> yeah, that's what I, and, and, and Coke, they give you this huge Coke for only $5. Now, if you're a baseball person, you'd be looking at me going, um... Okay, those things are all true, but you're missing it, buddy. What about the baseball game? Didn't, didn't that have any impact on you? If you're going for the t-shirts and the song and the hot dogs and the Coke, you're missing the ball game. I think that's similar to what people today see in Jesus Christ. Great teacher? Sure. He was. But my Bible says the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. This is a lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So if we have a conversation about Jesus and miss the salvation part, we've missed a lot, haven't we? We've really missed the most important part. So as we look at our text today, we're going to look at Paul addressing this answering questions like, who is Jesus, and what has he done for us? And forgive me, because we're going to cover some key doctrinal things here, and we're going to, we're going to have to you know, cover probably more ground. Some of these would deserve a, a study in and of themselves. But that's what we're really going to get to. And I w- I'm going to put forth to you that re- we could really rephrase that most important question, not just who do you say Jesus is, but what will you do with Jesus Christ? Or what are you going to do with Jesus Christ? Okay, now, since we're going to parachute in and we're going to grab a passage, we're going to pick up verses 12 through 23 in Colossians 1. Let me give you the context real quick. Colossians, a letter written by Paul. Paul's in prison in Rome, listed for us in Acts chapter 28. Okay? So the end of the book of Acts, he's imprisoned there. He writes three letters that are all sent out, it looks like, at the same time. Philemon actually goes to somebody in the Colossian church... At the same time and then the letter to the Ephesians was written at the same time Ephesians and Colossians are very similar If you look at their out, lay out their outline they're very very similar But but some of the detail shows you the differences See the first difference was Paul was in Ephesus for three years It's recorded for us in Acts 19 he based his ministry there And it says the word went to the whole region Colossae was in that region but Paul was never there He tells us in this letter he was never there. Somebody else brought the message there, started the church there. So there's the first difference. But the second difference really addresses the things that he heard were going on in this church. And some of the false teaching that was causing some of the people to kind of veer off track. And so the letter's really going to be establishing who Jesus is and then urging the people to stay on track and grow to maturity. So that, that's really what the letter is. So when we look at the introduction, typical introduction, but I, I, I bring you to verse number nine, where Paul <laughs> talks about how he prays for people. And he gets a great example for us on how we should be praying, looking at God, this is what I need personally, but also how we can pray for other people. Look at these four things that we see, Colossians 1.9. He says, for this reason, we uh, also, since the day we heard it, we don't cease to pray for you. Four things that he does. He asks that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So as we pray for others, that's a way we can pray for others. Lord, give give this person, this missionary servant, give them wisdom. Give them understanding. Second thing, that they may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So there's prayer request number two. Number three, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering. That's the Holy Spirit, right? How are we empowered? How are we strengthened? So we pray that the Holy Spirit would empower us and others. So Paul gives a marvelous example here of four ways that he prays. Oh, we only got to three, didn't we? What's the fourth one? And this is what really starts off our study today. The fourth one is giving thanks to the Father. So that thanksgiving he's not only praying that he would have a thankful heart but that others would have a thankful heart so but that's not our bible study today how and what paul is thankful for really gets us into our study of what has god done for us and who is jesus okay so starts in verse 12 really and that's the first part is what has god done for us and there are five things listed he says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. There are five things there. And If you want to uh, really get a mental hook here, how much was the Coke? Five bucks. Oh, there's five things here. Guess what? The second set of things—how many they're going to be? There's ten. Yeah. Funny how that worked, isn't it? Okay. First thing, he's qualified. Qualified, or we're qualified to be partakers of his inheritance. Let me ask you this, real simple question: How do you get yourself qualified for an inheritance? What do you have to do? Be born. You have to be born. You can't earn, typically, you can't earn or work for an inheritance. It goes to the relative. It goes to the child. It goes to the heir. Well, how do we become children of God? By faith, right? Right? Jesus has qualified us to be inheritors. We're adopted in as sons, as children of God, right? That's that's what he's done for us. He's qualified us. We haven't earned it. All we've done is responded to it and said, yes, sign me up, I'll take it. Okay? Second thing, he's delivered us from the power of darkness. Now, the word here in the original language really implies the word rescue. Rescue. Okay? He has delivered us, this is verse 13, delivered us from the power of darkness. Now, as you know, anybody been around the Bible any amount of time, Lots of contrast between light and darkness, right? All over the place. John chapter 1, 1 John, Jesus, he used that comparison. Other authors in the New Testament use that comparison between light and darkness all over the place, right? Here's the word rescue, though. Uh, Jot down, or uh, I'll read for you, 2 Timothy 2, uh, starting in verse 25, kind of kind of explains this uh, this idea in humility correcting those who are in opposition if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil having been taken captive by him to do his will yeah you see there's a whole idea of a rescue that's needed people who are believing the lies out there in the world they need to be rescued they need to think differently and Jesus is the one who's made that delivered us, made that rescue possible. Does that make sense? The other contrast we have, or the other verse that really explains it well, is that list from First uh, uh, Peter chapter two. Um, great, powerful list that Peter gives for us. First Peter two nine. Um, but you are a royal, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. His own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Okay, so that's the second thing that he's done. First thing is he's qualified us into this inheritance. Uh, Second thing, he's delivered us from the power of darkness. The third thing, he's conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. Okay, now when we use the word convey, we typically use it in two ways. If I'm trying to communicate to you, and I'm doing it effectively, I'm conveying a message to you, right? So it's, it's, it's getting an understanding from person one to person two. It's, could We convey a message. But secondly, it's actually moving an object, isn't it? A conveyor moves some thing or someone from point A to point B. At the airport, right, the moving sidewalks. You ever walk fast on those things? And then when you get off, you almost fall? Or maybe you do fall, I don't know. That's a conveyor, right? That's a conveyor. I always think of that old sitcom. Remember the Lucy show? Anybody remember that episode where she had she was working in the factory with the chocolates? That's one of the most hilarious sitcom episodes, like, ever in the history of the world. So if you haven't seen that, go and Google, uh, I don't know, Lucy or whatever. I Love Lucy, is that what it's called? Yeah. yeah. Anyway. The conveyor and the chocolate. It was just, it's hilarious. So so here's this idea. What has God done for us? He's conveyed us. We're at point A. He's moved us over here to point B. That's what Jesus has done for us. Right? He's taken us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. Fourth thing, he's redeemed us through his blood. He's redeemed us. The whole idea there is purchased, bought back. It's a legal term, a legal ransom. And we're going to talk about that just a little bit later as we uh, partake in communion together. The whole idea that he's redeemed us. And the fifth thing, he's forgiven us. He's forgiven us. Uh, in our text, it says that we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of his sins. Wow. So there's five things that he's done. He's qualified us to become his in into this inheritance, his heir. He's delivered us. He's conveyed this ki- into us into this kingdom. He's redeemed us. He's forgiven us. So Jesus has done a whole lot more than just set a good example, hasn't he? Wow, he's done a lot. And Paul thanks God for all that has been done for us. Okay, so... Paul, in in addressing this Colossian church, he wants to make sure they understand what God has done, and that what he moves into then is, who is Jesus? And so the next part here, as we pick it up in verse 15, he's going to really say, who is Jesus? And look for ten things here, as I mentioned. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Now, as I said, you've got a couple of years of seminary there in, the, in these verses if you want to take each item and do an de- in-depth study. Okay? And all I'm going to take is the next three hours or so to, to go. <laughs> just kidding. Okay. Let's just take a look at each one of these things. Paul felt that this church; it was important that he reinforced this, because they were. It looks like there was some uh, some concern that they would veer off this and miss out on who Jesus really is. The first thing is he's the image of the invisible God. Image there is the word icon in the Greek, and it's not I C O N; it's E I K O N. Icon can mean two things. When it says image. It can be a likeness, a likeness. If you take a coin or a dollar bill, there's a likeness, an image on it. Is it the real person? No, it just looks a lot like the real person, right? A, a piece of art. It may it may resemble that quite closely, or even someone you know. They see you with a kid, or you're with your parents, and oh, wow, looks just like his dad. Is he his dad? Well, no, he just looks a lot like it. There's a resemblance. Okay. That's the first way this word is used. But secondly, and this is very important, it also means manifestation. It also means manifestation, that it's actually the real thing being revealed. Okay? And that's where we have this happening here. In this this way, we're reminded of things that Jesus said. I and the Father are one. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So if Jesus is the image of the invisible God, we know it's not just a matter of, oh, boy, he sure looks a lot like his old man. No, way beyond that, way beyond that. And we're going to see as Paul develops this, that we're going to see that he leads us to the crucial point of understanding that Jesus is God. Okay, second thing, he's the firstborn over all creation. Once again, people get a little confused on things like this. Firstborn can mean two things. Firstborn obviously is in rank, right? The firstborn's the oldest, born first. And in the Old Testament time, didn't they have kind of some special responsibilities and some benefits of being firstborn, right? But it can also mean simply rank. Here's where some doctrinal stuff gets goofy. Who was first born of Jacob and Esau? Well, actually, Esau was born first, but God even said the older will serve the younger, right? How about David? Where did he fit in the family line? He was number, oh, he was number (laughs) last. He was eighth, right? Where was Judah, right? The, The lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus, the lion came through Judah. He was what, number four out of 12. So we see biblically that it doesn't necessarily always go with the person who's the oldest. But this idea of firstborn, it more means rank or position, not necessarily just a sequence, first in a sequence. Okay, careful, because some people have gotten some um, weird doctrine here. When it says, firstborn over all creation, they think he was the firstborn of creation. So he, they think, wrongly, that Jesus was the first one created. Ah, what do we do when we find a challenging passage in the Bible, folks? You guys are Bible guys. We look at the context. If it looks a little bit, you know, what's that mean? We spread out the context and say, well, maybe it'll be explained before, during, and after that text. And then if we need to go farther, what do we do? we go farther out in the Bible and we have the Bible interpret the Bible because the Bible won't contradict itself. So if you see a phrase or a verse and you go, well, that sounds weird. What does that mean? I don't get it all. Spread it out, get the whole context, and then if necessary, go out to the whole Bible. So we're going to do that here. So the people who would say, oh, Jesus was simply the firstborn of creation, that must mean what Paul's talking about here. We're going to see as we read on, he can't be. He can't be. We're going to see that he's actually the creator, not just the first one created, because there's been some goofy doctrine along, along that line. Okay, So the third thing, it says all things were created by him, through him, and for him. We're really going to see that Jesus is the creator. Jesus was there in creation, having a hand in creation. And, and I can, all kinds of support comes to mind, everything from Genesis and the creation account, let us, Plural, <laughs> create. So, um, but but let me let me do this for you. Let's let's do a little exercise, okay? Let's look at the four gospels. Just in your head, real, real quickly. We got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew starts out with a genealogy. Because what is Matthew trying to do? Matthew's really writing a gospel to the Jews. Matthew's trying to establish Jesus is this kingly Messiah that was promised in the line of David. So he takes his genealogy back to David, ultimately to Abraham. But his main goal is to establish Jesus is that promised king in David's line. Mark's gospel. Is there a genealogy? No. Why? Mark basically says, what did Jesus do? Chapter 1, the word immediately is used eight times. It's like, boom, he hits the ground running. He starts with a brief phrase about John the Baptist, but boom, it's, you're, you're halfway through Jesus' public ministry by the first couple of chapters. Because Mark really establishes, what did Jesus do? Doesn't give us a genealogy. Luke's gospel. What does that do? Well, there's a genealogy there too. Luke, a Gentile, really tries to establish Jesus Humanity. So guess where his genealogy takes us all the way back to? Adam. Adam. Ah, here's the fun part. John's gospel has a genealogy. Did you know that? Some of you guys are going, no, it doesn't. Yes, it does. <laughs> John 1. Turn there if you have a second. John 1.1. 1, 1. Many of you can probably recite this verse. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. Jump down to verse uh, 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So, what John's gospel does, and he tells us this, you know, when you read the end, it says uh, um, many things could have been written, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you have life in his name. John tries to establish for us, <laughs> Jesus is God. Takes us to creation in his genealogy. Kind of cool, huh? Yeah, so, think this through, folks, to applying what we're addressing today who is Jesus, and what has he done? we got a world out there that, that's going to, you know, sing Merry Christmas to Jesus here, hopefully. Not sure that most everybody's comfortable with that. Oh, he's a good person. Oh, he's a great example. Oh, he's a baby in a manger. All true, but we got to get to the fact that Jesus is God. In fact, he was, he's our creator. He's right there with God in creation. That's what Paul is laying out to the Colossians here. So, the fourth thing we see after creator, his, he's before all things. And that means eternal. And if, if any of you got, have got this one down and can, can explain in 10 seconds what that means, without beginning, without end, he's eternal. You know, I'd love to talk to you afterward, but that's what it says. Jesus is eternal. He's before all things. Fifth thing here is really kind of cool. It says he holds all things together, or in him all things consist Any guys paying atten- pay attention in school when they had the science class, especially like physics, and they tried to tell you what's a molecule and the different components in the atoms and the molecules, right? Okay, it's a couple of you with me there. All right, well, we had these uh, positive charges and these negative charges, right? There's protons, electrons, neutrons, you know. <coughs> but any of you ever just mess around with a magnet? What happens in that magnet if you try- if you put the two similar charges Try to push them together, what happens? I bo- I just there's a force there. Wow, And, and what, the, you know, if you have a nuclear reactor, if you have a nuclear explosion, what, what are they actually doing? There's actually a real powerful explosion when those atoms actually split apart. Atoms naturally should be trying to fly apart. Something has to hold them together because there are repelling charges in an atom. You know what my Bible says? Jesus is holding them together. (laughs) Hebrews 1 verse 3 kind of adds to that. This is not a science lesson. I'm not a scientist. But my Bible basically says Jesus is the one holding things together. You get these guys who are into the deep side of science here, and they're still trying to explain that, why atoms hold together, why molecules hold together, when they should be a repelling force. So do some yeah do some googling on that one because that's that's a fun one. Usually in every in every group there's a couple people that are really into that kind of stuff and the science stuff and it's like it's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing. They don't have a lot of good answers as to what holds those atoms together, but my Bible says Jesus holds them together. So the sixth thing says Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Clears that one up. <laughs> now for <laughs> centuries people have been arguing about that one. I don't know. My Bible says Jesus is, so I'll, sounds good to me. Next one, it says he's firstborn from the dead. We have that word firstborn again. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Firstborn from the didn't well, weren't there people that were raised from the dead in the Old Testament? Like under the ministry of Elijah and Elisha? How could he be firstborn from once again? we got to go to that whole idea that, yeah, there were people raised from the dead, but guess what? They died again, right? Even Lazarus in the New Testament, that happened before Jesus was resurrected. Jesus was the first in the resurrected body, and of course in rank and position, firstborn from the dead. He even came in that Lazarus situation, and he said, I am the resurrection. He didn't just say, I'm going to be resurrected. He said, I am the resurrection. So that's where our resurrection hope is. It's all in, in Jesus' So firstborn from the dead, you really think of that uh, situation there where where he raised Lazarus in John's gospel. The next one, he's preeminent in all things. Kind of a summary statement. Verse 18, uh, he's the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. And this, once again, it it gets to that that idea that God is our all in all, right? Right? And he's that that I am, that great I am. And Jesus ended up using that. In fact, John's gospel, there's seven I am statements. And the one he got in the most trouble for was he simply said before Abraham was, I am. So Jesus is God. He's preeminent in all things. And, of course, there's several wonderful verses that, that go to that. Uh, Revelation 19, it uh, says he's the... He's the king of kings, he's the Lord of lords. My favorite's probably Philippians 2. You probably know the verses, 8 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him, given him a name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow on heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Yeah. He's preeminent. Now the challenge is, if every knee's going to bow, huh, see where this is going? Who do you say Jesus is, and what are you going to do with him? Will he be your Lord and Savior? Or will he be your judge? That's really what it's going to come down to, isn't it? That's where our study is going. Yeah. It goes on to say here, that all fullness of God dwells in him. Uh, This is verse uh, 19. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. Reinforcing that idea. Jesus is God. Once again... We got some goofy heresy down through the years here where people try, groups have tried to say, yeah, Jesus, oh, he's great, he's from God, all this, but they fall short in establishing the fact that Jesus is God. You, I mean, you think of uh, uh, LDS and, and uh, Jehovah's Witnesses or the Moses and the Joes, you know, what do they say? Well, Jesus is, is uh, Lucifer's brother. Or they say he's Michael the archangel. It's like, well, yeah, man, you guys are commendable for the efforts you put forth in trying to evangelize the world, but your Jesus is, is a little short of what my Bible teaches. See? It's insufficient. And we have to be careful that we, we don't put forth a Jesus that's less than who he truly is and give him that credit, because one day every knee's going to bow. One day everybody's going to realize he is Lord of all, and he's God. I'd prefer that I make the choice to recognize that now, and he can be my Lord and Savior. Help me through this world. Give me a promise of eternal life forever rather than take my chances and face him as my judge. That's, I mean, that's not something I deserve, but he says that he promises that to those who put their faith in him. See? See what's going? Who's Jesus? Who do you say that he is? What are you going to do about it? He's also the reconciler of all things, and I hope this gives you some hope today. Because even if you're a believer, this world is still messy. Every one of us has got things, whether it's relationships with friends or family, where things get broken, things get ugly, and there's a need for reconciliation. Well, he's the reconciler of all things. And that's ultimately what he came to do and die on the cross for, to restore relationship. This also may be talking about what's referred to in Romans 8 where it says all creation groans. It says that the creation was subjected uh, to the fall. It's called the second law of thermodynamics. Did you know what? It basically says all, th- and once again, I'm not a science guy, all things go from, I'm a businessman actually by, by, by trade, so. Um, all things go from order to disorder, right? Is that the second law of thermodynamics? I mean, look at your yard, you know? If you don't do anything, what happens? How's it looking? Give it a month, it's a mess, right? So he's the reconciler. And so it might be that, that it's talking about that here too. When it says all things, ultimately, he's going to make all things new, it says in Revelation. It says he's uh, made peace through the blood on the cross. Now this does not mean, once again, this is a cause to, to, to put in a word about, this is not universalism. This is not universal as a meaning. Jesus died, and so hey, great, everybody's you know everybody's on, everybody's good, you know. It's conditioned on our response, our response. So don't don't think when it says he's reconciled of all things, oh, oh good, I'm off the hook, you know. No, there's a, still a sin problem that needs to be remedied by our response. So, okay, so here we have it. If you noted as we went through there. The phrase, all things, was listed a number of times. Did you see that? A number of times through there. And that's one, just a Bible study hint. When you see a repeated phrase like that, take note of it. Take note of it. All things. So somebody wants to say that Jesus, well, he's some, you know, some of this, and he helps me here in this. You know, it's like, no, look at Jesus, who he is in totality. Because he's reconciled to of all things. All the fullness of God dwells. Okay. And, and, and there's an importance there to understand that the fullness of who Jesus is, as best we can with these, these finite minds. He's our creator. He's our sustainer. He's our reconciler. He's in very person. He's eternal God. So, all right, part three. You ready? Oh, you said there's only two questions. I thought we we're done here. What are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about it? Let's look at verses 21 to 23 here. And you, who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. So, what about us? Yeah. We were alienated. Enemies. We were, we were separated from God. And without the gospel, without the, without Jesus and, and, the, and the forgiveness of sin that comes, there was a separation there. So Paul says we're once alienated. Uh, we've now been reconciled. He's reconciled us through his death. And he's there to present us as holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Man, that's not me, but... The Bible says, though our sins are as scarlet we made as white as snow. and uh, wow, what a great, uh, what a great thought that even though I deserve judgment for that sin and the mess I make of my life, he's there to uh, wipe all that sin away and present us as blameless. But there's an if here, did you catch that? If you continue in the faith now, Don't, doctrinally don't get that one, the way that reads, it's kind of like, oh, wow, you know, there's conditional here, can I lose my salvation, all those kinds of things. No, what Paul is getting at here in the Colossian letter, just just give you an overview, he's establishing first, let's make sure we know who Jesus is and what he has done, and then let's move on to maturity. Because these people, it seemed like there were some Things seeping into the church where people were saying, okay, we did Jesus, now we're going to go off and do something else. Or they're going to get into legalism, or they're going to get into some other things. And, and Paul's going to work hard, especially in chapter 2, to say, don't go that way, don't go that way. Get yourself and grow and become mature in Jesus. In fact, some people have said chapter, uh, just kind of fast forward to chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, may be the key verses in the whole letter. He says, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith as you've been taught, abounding with thanksgiving. So what Paul's goal seems to be in this letter is to say, folks, understand your salvation as best you can and then grow to maturity in that. Don't veer off into some of these weird tangents that that sell a Jesus for somebody he's not re- he isn't really and uh, and stay on course is what he's saying here. So when he says grounded, laying a firm foundation, steadfast, uh, keep uh, away from anything that would uh, veer you away from the hope of the gospel. So you see some cha- uh, challenges coming in the in the verses ahead. We're not going to study them today, but that whole idea as you read on, and maybe some of you want to pick this up and just say, okay, from here where does he go? He really says, hey. Keep moving towards maturity, which is what every Christian should be wanting to do. We need mature believers if we're going to have an impact here in this world. Uh, whether you've known the Lord for 40 days or 40 years, um, you know, the whole idea is we mature in that relationship with him. So, who is Jesus? What has he done? Pretty, pretty clear in this, uh, in this listing from Paul. Uh, But it demands a question. And I think for today, that question is best asked, what are you going to do with Jesus? As we present who Jesus is, it really demands a response from people, doesn't it? Now, some people, they have a cultural background that says, well, yeah, I grew up as this. I'm a Christian. I went to this type of church. And, you know, went to Sunday school. And they told me about (coughs) Jesus. Good. Good start. Better than not having that background. But we know that it demands a personal decision, doesn't it? It isn't just a matter of, oh, yeah, I attended that church, or I'm a member of that church, and my grandma goes to that church. No. We know that can get us in trouble. We need to take it to the full measure of who he is to to show genuine faith. And to do that, we're going to do a real quick study. Look at John chapter 9. John chapter 9. We're going to look at the whole chapter in under two minutes. And you'll see why. Because today so many people stop short of realizing who Jesus is in in his fullness. Okay? This is just one of the coolest stories. So if you're looking for something to pick up your Bible and read tonight or tomorrow morning, John 9 is just an awesome story. This blind man is healed. And they start arguing. Well, was you know, was he blind for his sin or his parents? And of course, Jesus says, "No, no, no, no." You know, let's get beyond that. But you got these religious leaders who are really you know trying to trying to mash this thing up. And it's just an awesome story as you go through it. But watch the progress in the man born blind and who he says Jesus is. Okay, that's all I'm going to try to do here. Verse 11. So he's been healed. They come to him. They're challenging him. Who opened your eyes? Or how are your eyes opened? Verse 11, he answered and said, A man called Jesus made clay and anointed. My eyes said to me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. I washed. I received my sight. So at this stage, what is he saying about Jesus? Who is Jesus to him? He's a man. Okay? Verse 17. They're asking him again. Uh, 17. They said to the blind man again, What do you say about him? Because he opened your eyes. He said, He is a? prophet. Oh, okay. Now he's upgraded it to, he's not just a man, now he's a prophet. Okay? Is that sufficient? Oh, let's keep going. Let's keep going. Verse 33. And read the whole story, because the whole story is just one of the, I think, almost, it's almost funny. You know, the way Jesus and this blind guy just, just connect and just kind of trash these other, these other guys and all their thinking. Um, Let's, let's pick it up in uh, verse 30. The man answered and said to them, Why, this is a marvelous thing. You don't know where he is from, yet he opened my eyes. And we know that God doesn't hear sinners, but if anyone's a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears them. Since the world began, it's been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Well, now he's not just a man. He's not just a prophet. He's from God. So now he's, he's got to be from God. Okay? Ah, one more step. One more step. Verse 38. Um, well, 37, Jesus said to him, now Jesus is talking to the, this guy who was born blind. You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. And he said to him, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. You see why we picked this example? That's where we need to get to. Those are the people that will be partaking in the inheritance. Those that get to the point that say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, and we are worshipers. The whole world will admit that Jesus is a good man, maybe a prophet, maybe even from God does great things, sets a great example. Will that bring salvation? (sighs) Not the way I read the Bible. They may be well-intentioned, but seems like we have to get to the point where we recognize that Jesus truly is the Son of God. He came for our salvation. And as we present him, whether even that's on the job, having a talk over lunch with someone, whatever it may be, family member, this Christmas, we have to get to the point where we say, well, actually, Jesus was all those things, but he was indeed the Son of God, and he is one worthy to be worshipped. That's why we worship him because he gives us new life now and a promise of being, <coughs> living with him forever. That's who he truly is, you see? That's the answer to those questions. Who do you say that I am? <laughs> and ultimately, what are you going to do with Jesus? Because we all have a choice to make. It's not just a matter of saying it, it's a matter of what are we going to do. Because we know that, uh, for instance, in uh, Romans 10, 9 and 10, just give you some, some verses. So it isn't just a matter of someone giving the right response and a fill-in-the-blank type of test. Romans 10, 9, and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. The, with the heart one believes into righteousness, with the mouth confession is made to salvation. So it's not just a matter of who do you say that I am and you give the right answer to get people off your back. There has to be something that happens in the heart as well. That's true belief that way. And uh, you can go to Matthew 7, where Jesus says, uh, many will come to me in that day and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this and do this? and..." And what does he say? Depart from me, you evildoers. I never knew you. Even though they're hanging around and doing things in Jesus' name, I never knew you implies relationship or lack of relationship. So the whole idea, if he's going to be our Lord, we're going to have a relationship with him or we're going to trust him. So really, that's why I say it's not just a matter of using that question, saying, who do you say that I am? It's really a matter to people, what are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with Jesus? So that's why I would probably phrase that question that way. So with that, let's pray. Father, we're so thankful, so thankful that you make it clear to us. Uh, Even without years of study, we just look into your word and we see Uh, our need for a Savior. We see clearly who Jesus is. We see clearly uh, that you loved us so much that you provided a way for us to be restored, to be reconciled to you. So I I just pray, Lord, that we'd understand that and be reminded of that on a regular basis, whether we've been a believer just for a short time or for our whole lives. Help us to be a people who know you, who want to grow in that relationship with you, and, and, and Lord, give us a, a, a burden and a, and a love for people who don't know you that we may, in a loving way, bring that question to bear. What are you going to do with Jesus? So help us to, to have that answer, that we'd be ready to give an answer to all those who ask us for the reason of the hope that we have, to do it with love and gentleness, but also a fullness of your Holy Spirit's power, that we may represent you well, that ministry of reconciliation that you've somehow chosen to make us your ambassadors, your representatives. So, Lord, help us to be a people that uh, doesn't overlook your salvation. But uh, especially this time of year, as we get into conversations around Christmas, Lord, help us to put all the stuff aside and, and get right to the point of who Jesus is and to be reminded of that ourselves and our families. And then ultimately, we may be ones that 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 clearly bring that message and bring that hope and uh, would, would see people coming to know you. So do a great work here in this church. Do a great work in this community uh, as we share the answer to that most important question, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.